Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So, hello everybody. I am back from a holiday abroad in uh, Tübingen, Germany. Uh, What does that have to do with RPGs? Well, when I first started playing Dungeons & Dragons, I needed a town for the PCs to start in. I homebrewed my entire adventure, so I needed to create my own town. And I based that town on Tübingen, Germany, because I had lived there when I was a foreign exchange student in the year 2000. It has a very charming and very well-preserved medieval section, or Altstadt. And because I spent so much time there just wandering around the labyrinthine streets, looking at all the architecture and the cobblestones and things, it's always been my my uh, go-to image of a medieval town. So I literally stole it, the entire layout and the street names and the landmarks and everything. And, uh, you know, you don't need to get this advice from me. It's pretty common advice from, uh, from basically anybody who's ever homebrewed in their own adventure. But, you know, if you haven't heard it before, I'm going to say it now. Do that. Steal something. Like, steal a real place. If you need a location, think of a real place. Um, I'm sure there's a... The module, I think it's the Northern Lands for uh, for basic D&D. It has this really elaborate cave system that the, the PCs can explore. And it's based on... It's based on real-life caves in the U.S. They basically just took... The layout probably from like a tourist document or something copied it and then stalked it like a dungeon you know take your hometown or a place that you've been on holiday or a place you've heard of and you like the sound of it you know just start there you know chances are your players will never know if they do know then who cares it's still a fun game there's a there's a thing that we have in modern times, the burden of originality. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, they didn't have that. They, uh, they just basically retold the same familiar stories over and over again. Sometimes they foregrounded one aspect of it and backgrounded another aspect to give it a little, a unique spin. But nobody ever expected you to come up with a completely original idea until the Romantic period in the 19th century, when suddenly this idea of originality crept into art, and it's now our expectation. But a game of Dungeons and Dragons or any role-playing game isn't literature. It's a fun time for a bunch of friends or family. You don't have to recreate something as good as Tolkien, you know, you don't even have to create something as good as the Robert E. Robert e. Howard Conan stories, which are not great literature by any stretch of the imagination. You just have to create something that's fun. 
And uh, it was really great to walk around Tübingen again and remind myself both of <clears throat> what it was like when I lived there before. That's also where I met my wife. So it was interesting to bring my kids there because they would literally not exist if it weren't for for that that town and my time there. But I also did get to thinking about my approach to uh, creative writing because I've been uh, an aspiring writer for a long, long time and how that, how that differs from my approach to uh, adventure design. Because when it comes to creative writing, I do have that burden of originality and I have the burden of perfectionism and basically part the way through any given creative writing project. I uh, I freak out and decide it's not good enough and I, I lose all the momentum and I can't ever finish it. But I don't have that anxiety when I design um, an RPG adventure because I know it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be as good as the great writers that inspire me to write, you know, and my favorite writer is James Joyce. So I measure myself against something like that. And it's like, well, this isn't as good as Ulysses and you know, nothing's going to be as good as Ulysses, but and I know that intellectually, but I don't know it emotionally. So I can never finish a creative writing project, but I don't have that anxiety at all. All that I, the only thing that I set out to do, when I'm designing an RPG adventure is make it fun. All it has to be is fun. It doesn't have to make any sense. It doesn't have to feel epic or, you know, I don't, I don't need those deep emotional moments that you get on like critical role. You know, I just, as long as everybody at the table has, is having fun, that's the only thing. So, I mean, I would have no qualms for instance, about completely ripping off the Hobbit as an entire like adventure to get you from, you know, a certain level to a much higher, higher enough where you could explore a dungeon that has a dragon in it. Even if the players realize that they were, that they were literally playing the Hobbit, because you know what? The Hobbit would be a fun adventure to play and you could make different decisions. You know, you could, um, if you think about when they were about to go through Mirkwood and they're like, oh, it's going to be really difficult to go through Mirkwood. And they're like, well, can we go around Mirkwood? And Gandalf's like, well, you could, but it would take you a lot longer. And if you went south, you'd have to go past the Necromancer's Tower. And if you went north, you'd have to go by the mountains that are full of goblins and orcs. But what if the party said, you know what? We're going to take that risk. <laughs> we can fight. We just fought a bunch of goblins. We can fight some more. We're going to go north. We're going to go around Mirkwood, north, near those mountains, come what may, and then approach the Lonely Mountain from the north end. And if you did that, you would have a completely different outcome than the outcome in the book. So rip stuff off, rip off settings, rip off places from the real world or from other literature, rip entire plot lines off from books and films. Um, the, the first stage of my first homebrew adventure was entirely stolen from Seven Samurai, the Akira Kurosawa film. And, you know, <clears throat> to a certain extent, The Magnificent Seven. And I guess even A Bug's Life, you know, they're all kind of echoes of the same thing. There's a town in trouble. Somebody from that town comes looking to recruit adventurers to help them and ends up recruiting a bunch of people who are probably subpar, 
but they pull through, they rise to the occasion, and it all works out in the end. That was basically, that's the whole idea of the whole first phase of my first homebrew adventure. I just thought, that's a great idea. And, you know, my daughter's never seen Seven Samurai, but even if she had, I still would have done it. And I would do it if I were running it for grown-ups who maybe have seen either Seven Samurai or The Magnificent Seven or something like that. Because it's still a great scenario. So, you know, steal. Don't be original. Don't be creative. Steal creatively. Take something, someone else's idea and riff off it and make it your own. Because at the end of the day, you're not trying to make an epic work of literature. You're just trying to have fun with your friends or family or both. Another thing that happened in Germany, um, I got some distressing news, uh, so brace yourselves for this. I saw a poster for a uh, music festival called Rotenburg Open Air, and the headliners were Limp Biscuit. So uh, they still exist. I know it's hard to believe. When I say the headliners, they weren't the um, the main headliners. They were second billing under um, a German hip-hop group called uh, 187 Straßenbande, which translates as 187 Street Band, probably Street Gang, although it's possibly also a pun on Straßenbahn, which means streetcar. Um, 187 is... Uh, gangster slang for murder. So, um, interesting to note that uh, Limp Biscuit were second fiddle, not to like a an internationally renowned German group, like Rammstein or the Scorpions, but to a hip-hop group from Hamburg that presumably nobody outside of Germany has ever heard of. Um, nonetheless, the fact that there is still a group called Limp Biscuit that um, are out there presumably making what what they call music in the same way that KFC makes food, you know. It's it was just quite a rude awakening. Um, I'm still I'm still struggling to cope with that. Um, and I, I'm sorry to darken your day with this this distressing news, but uh, I felt it was important to mention. And some more positive things that happened while I was on holiday is um, the uh, the podcast has been carried by pretty much all the major providers, so iTunes and Spotify and Google Podcasts and all the stuff, lots of stuff that I haven't even heard of. So um, <clears throat> presumably you can now listen to this just about anywhere. I think I'll need to update the link on my blog because the my blog, my WordPress blog wants me to link it to iTunes. So if I can do that, I can update it pretty much automatically. And I got some phone-ins. Um, so I'm going to do... A phone-in from Tim Short of Gothridge Manor first, who uh, had some comments about InfraVision and DarkVision. Hey, Robert. This is Tim Short from Gothridge Manor. 
was just listening to your episode about Infravision. I'm kind of catching up on back episodes. And uh, I don't think, know if I've ever even, if it came into play with my games. I, I, I know it ha- um, hasn't recently. And I don't think I even involved that. I think I, for my last house rolls, it was just ignored for the most part. And it worked out fine. Because it's funny because most of my players play humans anyways. Except for one guy who always likes to play gnomes. And it's not like he waits around for light anyway. He's, he's, he's the guy who charges into the darkness and attacks. So, But hey, good blog, uh, great blogcast. Uh, or podcast, not blogcast. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. So thanks for that, Tim. Um, yeah, so uh, there had been some discussion about InfraVision and DarkVision. I think it, it started with Colin Green and Spike Pit, where he was talking about, um, you know, InfraVision and stuff and about whether you could really take it out. Um, I think the last thing that I had I had contributed to that was that 5th um, edition Dark Vision is kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, Um and and after the uh, after Tim's comment, I was thinking that's probably not fair because so if you think if you go back to infravision, the whole point of that was that it's based on heat. So you know if if you have a party in an old school game where they have the uh, the class restrictions, you're going to have at least one human because there are some classes that only humans can play. And if you're bringing a healer, that's definitely a human. Um, And that means that somebody's carrying a torch. And the torch is going to distract from the infravision. So the infravision will only come into play if you get one of those Gygaxian gusts of wind that blows the torch out and suddenly everybody's in darkness. And then the dwarf can use their infravision to maybe guide you to a safe place and you can relight your torch. Um, So it's not not game-breaking. But, you know, 5th edition Dark Vision isn't actually that game-breaking either. I mean, it can be, but there are restrictions on it. For one thing, it's a distance of 60 feet anyway, but it's dim light as if it's bright light or total darkness as if it's dim light. And dim light is that, that counts as lightly obscured, which gives everybody, even the elves and the dwarves, disadvantage on perception checks based on sight. So if you have a party of PCs with dark vision and they think they're going to go do a dungeon crawl with no torches, they're going to have disadvantage every time they try to look at something. If they're going to try to do total darkness with no light sources, it's not like they they necessarily can just see in the dark. Um, On the other hand, you can play it that way if, as a dungeon master, like if, if you're using darkness as an obstacle rather than as like a mood setting, then maybe you want to, you'll be concerned about how your characters can overcome darkness and maybe want to put limits on that. But if, if you're just using darkness for atmosphere and you don't want to stop gameplay while people are fiddling about with torches and lanterns and stuff like that. You want to get to something else. If that's your choice as a, as a game master and as a group, then you can use dark vision as a get out of jail free and say, well, you can all see, you can all see in the dark. If you think about like how Shalob's lair was filmed in Lord of the Rings in the book, it's clear that that is completely dark and Frodo and Sam cannot see anything at all. 
But obviously they can't show that. They can't have an entire sequence on, on, on screen where there's literally nothing but darkness. So they do that or it's very dim and dark, but you can still clearly make out all the things on the screen because, you know, the audience has to have something to watch. And you can run your game like that where it's dark and creepy, but not in a mechanical way, you know. And that's fine if that's your choice. You know, every game master probably has um, the rules that they want to hammer down on and and, uh, and and use. Like, I really like things like encumbrance and tracking, uh, you know, consumable goods. Some people hate that. They're like, ah, I don't care what you're carrying. I'm not going to worry about the weight and how many rations you have or, you know, make you find water sources every single day. That's not the game I'm running. And that's totally fine, you know. Um, so, you know, I guess it, this ends up being one of those any way you want to do it is good. I uh, I personally like to make darkness a thing that people can't necessarily see through. And since I'm running uh, old school D&D with my kids, um, darkness is definitely a thing because I'm using the rules where you can't actually see in the dark. So, And uh, the other message that I got while I was on holiday comes from Colin Green at Spike Pit, who uh, asked me if I had any thoughts on the black hack. Hi, Robert. Colin at Spike Pit here. Just wondering, you I believe you mentioned the Black Hack in one of your episodes. And I was wondering if, following on from the Kids on Bikes episode at some point in the future, whether you might like to talk about the Black Hack. Uh, I've got a copy and I think it's a good system. I haven't run it, but from a design point of view, it looks really interesting and I'd be curious as to what you think of it. Okay, mate. Just food for thought. Catch you later. So the black hack, uh, for people who don't know, um, I, I guess at its heart, it's another retro clone, another clone of Dungeons & Dragons or an earlier version of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, it's a little bit coy about exactly which edition it clones. It refers to the original 1970s role-playing game or fantasy fantasy role-playing game, which suggests it's an OD&D clone. But um, it has uh, some unique mechanics it brings in based on the author's uh, personal house rules um, that make it seem uh, like it has a more tenuous connection to OD&D than, say, Swords and Wizardry, which, you know, is very clearly linked to uh, to original Dungeons and Dragons. Um <clears throat> Like the uh, like the D twenty system, which resolves all dice mechanics into uh, rolling a D twenty and trying to roll high, the black hack resolves um, the dice mechanics to rolling under your ability score. So it's the the roll under system, which in principle should work just as well as uh, D twenty roll high. Um, in practice, what happens is, like, to make an attack, you roll under your ability score, you roll under, your, like, your strength score, but you also roll under your ability score to dodge attacks from monsters and opponents, and I'm not crazy about that. Um, I think that falls into the trap 
that other game designers have fallen into, which is the assumption that because rolling dice is fun, rolling even more dice is even more fun. And I, th- I find that in practice there's a, an ideal amount of dice rolling before it gets excessive. Um, and, and what you do want is you want s- some of the dice rolling to be done by the players and some of it to be done by the DM. And that's why you want monster attack rolls. That's why you want saving throws and things like that. You don't want the players to roll for absolutely everything. Otherwise, they spend the whole time rolling dice. You want some dice rolling and some dice rolling to be taken over by the DM, and you want some things to be resolved without dice rolls at all. So I feel like that's actually a mistake, um, having to roll to avoid the attacks. You know, it really should be the... I, I would keep monster attack rolls, personally. The other um, interesting innovation it does is armor doesn't raise your AC. Instead, armor absorbs damage. And each type of armor has an amount of damage it uh, it can absorb. And once it's absorbed that amount of damage, you can't... It won't absorb any more damage until you finish a long rest. Um, I like that better than... Um, getting all your hit points back after a long rest. Um, but I think the first time I mentioned the black hack, I said I'm not looking for uh, I'm not looking for armor to to change the to change the way that armor works. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, well, actually, I, I am looking for a new armor mechanic. It's just not that one. What I actually want. I'm fine with armor absorbing damage because actually that is what armor would do in real life. Armor doesn't make you harder to hit. It absorbs the damage so you don't have to. So I'm I'm okay with that. But what I'm really looking for, uh, if I'm going to change how armor works, I really just want a mechanic where armor and shields can break and you occasionally have to repair it or get new armor. Um, if you think about, if you, if you take OD&D, or any of the OD&D retro clones, a suit of plate armor probably runs you about 50 gold pieces. And it's totally possible, if you roll high on your starting money roll, if you roll 3d6, multiply that by 10, you can get a, quite a lot of money. You can get as much as 180 gold pieces. It's totally possible for you to afford plate armor and a shield and a good weapon and some adventuring gear right out of the right out of the gate. It's not hard. And at 50 gold pieces, even if you couldn't afford it for your first adventure, chances are you could buy it if you survive if you survive your first adventure, you can come back to town and chances are you can afford plate armor then. So you're talking about first second level fighters might easily have access to plate armor. Now, of course, during your adventuring career, all sorts of stuff could happen. You could, you could fight a black pudding or a rust monster or something like that. And, you know, you'll probably be on the lookout for magic armor and you want to upgrade that way. But barring those circumstances, there's nothing in the rules that would prevent you from 
keeping that first suit of plate armor from level one all the way to level 20. You know, whereas I think in real life it would be absurd for a fighter to have one suit of armor and, and do a, get in a lot of combat, enough to level up to a, a really high level of play, and have that armor still just be fine. You know, never need any repairs or adjustments or, or just get completely shattered and be unusable and you just need to replace it. So I would be looking for a mechanic where armor and shields can just break. There is a rule in the black hack that it's, it's for fighters it's, um, where basically they can choose to have their shield shatter instead of taking any damage. And then, of course, that means that they're without a shield for the rest of that fight and they have to go buy a new shield. But there isn't a similar rule for like their, their plate mail or their chain mail. And I think it would, it would add an extra, uh, an extra dynamic to fighting if you knew it was possible for your armor to wear out or to, uh, to become ruined through excessive combat. It would, it would be another thing that you'd have to think about when you were approaching a potential, a potential fight. Um, so I wouldn't adopt that armor system. I would either go ahead and just keep AC, although I, with the roll under system, AC doesn't really, it doesn't really come into play if you're just trying to roll under your ability score. Um, but I would either try to yeah, homebrew some uh, armor shattering mechanic or just not, not worry about that. But in principle, I, I, I do prefer the armor wearing or re- needing to regenerate after a long rest and your hit points. Um, that, that works better in an old school context. Um... So some other things, there's, um, when you reach zero hit points in the black hack, instead of dying, you are out of action and you can't do anything more in that fight. And if the rest of your party also loses the fight, then, you know, your body is lost forever. If they, if, they, if they don't win and they have to retreat and they aren't, aren't able to take your body with them, you're lost forever. But if they do win the fight, then you roll a d6. And so you have a 1 in 6 chance for a bunch of different things to happen. Well, 6 things to happen. I mean, one of them is um, you, you wake up and you're fine. You're just out of it for a bit. If you roll a six, you're dead. So you have a one in six chance of actually dying. You could have cracked bones, which lowers your strength temporarily. You could have a crippling injury, which lowers your strength permanently. You could have a disfigurement, which lowers your uh, charisma permanently. So there's some interesting options. Now, I mean, uh, Questing Beast... uh, reviewed the black hack and I would actually if you're interested in the black hack I would recommend you look at his review uh, it's pretty thorough as are all his reviews um, he pointed out that this makes it harder to die and that is technically true it means that if you're reduced to zero hit points or less you go you go unconscious and then assuming that the rest of the party can complete the fight and win you only have a one in six chance of actually dying but there are some other 
interesting consequences. And, you know, the more times you drop to zero hit points, the more times you're going to roll on that table, the more likely it is you're going to carry a serious injury or some serious disfigurements. You know, your mental image of your character is going to change. He's going to have scars, maybe a missing ear or a missing eye, you know. Maybe you think that he's missing some fingers on his hand or something. I mean, there's all there's all sorts of interesting ways that that can develop your character. That's you know, realistic for somebody who would have survived a lot of combats with supernatural creatures. Um, and I feel like, to me, I feel like that's actually a pretty good way of keeping the feeling that the stakes are high in combat without it having just to be death. Because, you know, death, I mean, it's the perennial controversial topic in, in D&D and similar role-playing games is, you know... You don't want to take it so easy that death is impossible, but, you know, do you, how, how lethal do you want your game to be? I feel like this is a good way, this mechanic is a good way of making, making there be consequences to fighting and to losing a fight that are serious and have an impact on the game, but aren't just death. I feel like that, it, it makes a good compromise, I feel, and I, I am definite, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of that mechanic. Um, in fact, it's probably my favorite mechanic in the game. Um, the other thing that's really cool about the first edition of the Black Hack is um, what's commonly referred to as the adventure um, that that is written for. It's not really an adventure. It's called Sorrow Set. It's like it's basically a, a table for randomly generating a starting town and the adventures around it, um, and I really like that because I feel like that's a good kind of low prep time way of of getting a, a really good adventure, you know, without having to spend hours and hours and hours um, preparing a campaign, either studying somebody else's material or coming up with your own. Um, and in fact, I've backed the Black Hack Second Edition, and the the reason that I backed it was because there was the promise of even more random tables. It's going to be longer than the original Black Hack. And it was the promise of that some of that space would be taken up with more random tables, more random monster generators, more random uh, monster motivations and things like that, you know. Uh, and, and that's what I'm really after. So in terms of running the Black Hack as a system... Um, so I believe uh, Chuck Thorin on his podcast, Playing It Wrong, was talking about retro clones. And uh, his opinion was that you, you kind of you pick one that's your core and then you, you know, you look into a lot. You look into lots of other ones and you steal bits from them that you like. Um, but your favorite one, that's your core one. And my favorite retro clone um, and has been for a while, is uh, Swords and Wizardry White Box. So that's always going to be kind of my core game engine. Um, but there are some things that I I like from the Black Hack um, that I, I would add into, into my game. And one of them is that out-of-action mechanic, whereas instead of you being... It's, it's like, it's not going the whole death-saving-throw thing that 5th edition has... 
it's a, uh, but to me, it's actually better if you don't want to just say, okay, you're dead, fine, you know, and, and be and be super harsh like that. It's a good way to raise the stakes of combat without 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 just going straight for the kill, and uh, I really like that mechanic a lot. Um, and I I would work on. Um, Something with the armor, something where the armor can wear out or break and it has to be replaced periodically. Um, oh, the other thing that I really like, um, in fact, the other two things that I really like about the Black Hack, uh, it doesn't use exact distance. It has like four distance categories, close, uh, near, far away, and distant. And they are, they are abstract. <coughs> Close is basically a melee range right away. Uh, nearby, nearby is you can move and attack in on your turn. You can do both on your turn. Old school D and D has has a an action economy that basically allows you to do only one thing on your turn. You can move or attack. And if you need to move into melee to attack because you don't have ranged attacks, then you can only close into melee range on your turn. You have to wait till your next turn to attack. Which, you know, under that, under those strict rules, you would kind of think, well, who would ever close into melee then? Because what you're doing is you're basically putting yourself in a position to be attacked. Um, you will definitely, because of the way initiative works, you will definitely get attacked before you have a chance to attack. So it's inherently a risk. In fact, it's it's not like oh, it, it's a it's a risk. Do I want to like? Is there a potential reward? It's like you're basically walking up to somebody and saying, "Please stab me with your sword." Um, whereas under this abstract distance, if somebody is nearby, you can move and attack them. So I feel like that's pretty cool. And um, if they're far, if they're far away. You can move up to them on, on your turn, but you won't be able to attack them until your next turn. So you can say, I think that's too great a risk. I'm not going to go put myself in the danger zone. And then distant is like three moves. So I really like that because I always forget how you're supposed to generate encounter distance. It's something, it's, it's a couple of D6s and multiply or a couple of d4s and multiply it by something but i always forget it in the moment and it's not on the backs of the uh of like the official uh gm screens um i should probably just make a, a post-it note but it's like with this i should be like well you know what? i'm gonna roll a d4 one is the closest far as the four is the farthest away and we'll just do it like that and we will and then you also don't have to worry about measuring people's movement exactly you know and uh, doing their encumbrance that way. It's just like, well, whatever it is, to you, this thing is is this far away. It's going to take you this many moves to get there. And then just don't worry about it. And the other thing I like a lot is the usage die. Now, I am terrible at tracking ammunition. As a DM, I know that is one of my weaknesses. I feel like ammunition ought to be tracked. There are some D DMs who just give up on that. They're like, I'm not going to bother tracking ammunition. My DM at, at my friendly local game store is like that. He's just like, look, I don't track ammunition. I don't think he was saying it was like a house rule. I think he was just admitting, like I do, that 
he's bad at it, but he's just not going to worry about it. He's like, I know I don't track ammunition, so don't even worry about it. But I feel like ammunition ought to be tracked. It should be part of that resource expenditure that I think is part of the challenge of the game. So in the Black Hack, you have usage dies, and every... Every consumable item has a usage die. And let's say it's a D10. Every time you use it, you roll the D10. And I think it's like a one or a two. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm doing this from memory. I think it's like a one or a two. If you roll a one or a two, you degrade the die down to a D8. And eventually, you know, you're, eventually you'll get down to a D4. And if you roll a 1 or a 2 on a D4, then you're out of it. That's your last arrow. And I really like that because I feel like that's a way that it's, it does allow for ammunition to run out without me having to actually sit around and, and record precisely how many arrows you've used. You know, um, I feel like that's a great mechanic. Um, a great way to make resource management a thing. I mean, not so much management, but it means that every time you use an arrow, it's possible that you're going to downgrade. And when you get to D4, you're going to run out soon and you'll have to go and spend some money buying more arrows and maybe and boost it back up to your D10. Um, it uses that for everything, including things like torches and stuff like that. I'm not as crazy about using it for absolutely everything. Um, I feel like, you know, torches last an hour, um, turns are 10 minutes. So, you know, you know how long a torch is going to last. I feel like, I feel like there's a, the, the thing about measuring, uh, or tracking ammo in combat is that there's so much to think about in combat that I forget to track the ammo. But when you're out of combat and you're using things like lamp oil, and torches and rations and water things move at a slower pace and i feel like i i i'm i'm i feel more comfortable tracking those the traditional ways so i'm not i'm not crazy about using the usage die for everything but i do like using it for ammo um speaking of turns the mechanic i like least um apart from the uh the rolling under to avoid monster attacks is uh it measures turns in moments and minutes and uh instead of turns and and rounds and i i don't have a problem with turns and rounds i'm not looking to change that i don't see the advantage of using moments and minutes i don't see what positive effect it's going to have on the game so i think long story short well it's too late for that um but yeah um my thoughts on the black hack is it has some really good really good mechanics especially ones that are that'll be useful for stopping the bookkeeping cuz you know I'm not I don't want to do a lot of bookkeeping I want to play the game and have a good time um it has some really great mechanics to uh to save on bookkeeping and to keep the play kind of moving forward and moving fluid um but I wouldn't use it personally as my core system what I would do is I would still use white box as my core system and I would say, look, instead of tracking ammo, we're going to use the usage die. Instead of using exact encounter distance, we're going to use these four categories. Um, those are the those are the sorts of things that I would do. I, w- I would just cherry pick some of the mechanics from it um, and incorporate them into, you know, another system. Um, one of the great advantages of the black hack is it is super cheap. 
it's really, really short to read. Um, I think the second edition is going to be a lot longer. Um, but the first edition is like, you could read the whole thing in a few minutes and it is super cheap to buy. Even in print, it's like, it's hardly any, any money at all. And if you just want a PDF, I think it's just a couple of bucks. I think it's like $2 us to buy the PDF on drive through RPG. Um, you know, you could like, you could like, you could buy a, a, a 16 ounce bottle of Coke or you could like have the black hack, you know, something like that. So, um, that's a great advantage of it, especially if you're, if you have a, a more expensive core system and you want to pinch some mechanics out of this, you know, you might as well just get it. Um, but personally, I can't see myself using it as the core system. Um, but yeah, it definitely has some really good ideas. And I am, I'm very much looking forward to the second edition, although mainly because I want more random tables. Um, and also, I have, not, I have not actually incorporated any of the black hack mechanics into the white box game I'm running for my kids yet. Um, it's it's uh, something that I'm considering doing. I don't actually want them rolling a lot of extra dice. So I don't want to say, okay, now make sure you roll your d10 for your arrows. I feel like I'm I'm trying to keep I'm trying to keep them doing the same thing over and over again, especially for my son who, you know, I don't want to keep confusing him with different die rolls. My daughter's already getting a little bit confused because initiative is ruled on a D six and she's used to initiative being ruled on a D twenty, so I find that does trip her up when I say it's time to roll initiative and she's like she's like, oh, Is this the one where we roll the D six? It's like, Yeah, that's the one this is the one where we roll a D six. Um, my son's not as confused because he hasn't played fifth edition yet. All right, so that's my uh, long-winded thoughts on possibly the shortest rules set for an RPG besides Swords of Wizardry Light. So, but speaking of the black hack, I uh, recently received in the mail a um, a print-on-demand copy of Bloat Games' um, Dark Places and Demogorgons. And... Uh, that that system owes a great debt to the black hack it is it is perfectly clear from even a cursory read that it owes a lot to the black hack um and uh chuck thorin just did a flip through of vigilante city which is another bloat games release and i thought I might just do the same for Dark Places and Demogorgons, but since I've rambled on enough for one episode, I think I will save that for next time. But um, it's a it's definitely following a theme because I think without the Black Hack, there would well without the Black Hack, Dark Places and Demogorgons would be a very different game. Um, so um, I will be I will probably be reviewing that next, and. Um, I suppose if while I'm doing it, any other thoughts I have on the black hat come to mind, because it'll be a lot like reading the same rule system over and over again, um, I will bring that up then. And until then, thanks for listening. Uh, play well and let the dice fall where they may.